So we are finishing our series in James today, um, looking at chapter five. And as I was prepping this talk, I came across this amazing quote from a guy called um, Cyprian, who was a third century theologian in, from North Africa. And he says, beloved brethren, we are, not, we are philosophers not of words, but of deeds. We exhibit our wisdom not by our dress, but by our truth. We know virtues by their practice rather than through boasting of them. We do not speak great things, but we live them. And I saw that quote and I thought, what a fantastic summary of um, this kind of journey that we've been going on through James. We do not speak great things, but we live them. This is a book about living faith, mm. not just talking about what you believe, but living it, letting it weave into your choices, into your relationships, into your day by day, how you use your time, how you respond to situations. Mm. So uh, let's crack on. And we are going to be going to Jess Uman in the north. Um, the North Gathering, and she is going to read us. Can we see Jess Uman? There she is, one of the greats, um, looking lovely in blue this morning. Oh, thanks. Um, um, and you're going to read James chapter 5. I am indeed. Amazing. Thank you. So, um, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Amen. Thank you so much, Jess. Um, lovely to see you. Um, so, uh, well, firstly, like James writes the kind of letter 
that I would love to write because when it comes to writing an email, the way I love, like, well, the way I do it is I just want to be direct. I just want to say what I want to say. There's no fluff around this. So I, have, I write what I want to say and then I have to go in and add the fluff around it. James doesn't really have, like, the fluffy bits at the end. Um, he just, to soften it up, he just kind of says what he thinks and then just kind of mic drop and leaves it. Um, and at first glance, this chapter seems like a little bit all over the place. Uh, seemingly disconnected thoughts kind of bundled together. And, I, and first of all, when I read this, I thought, well, cheers, James, slash cheers, Pete Hughes. Um, because what I've got here is three totally unconnected talks. I've got something about the rich, I've got something about suffering, and then I've got something about prayer at the end. And I was tempted just to sack off the first two bits, just talk about prayer, because it's something I'm really interested in. But it took me a while to work out what bonds this passage together. What is the key ingredient that holds this passage together? And I missed it at first because it's something, probably something I don't particularly excel in, and that is patience. If you look um, in James 5, 7 to 11, you'll see he uses the word patience four times. He actually uses it six times um, I'll, I'll explain why later. And they're using quick successions. And he basically, it's, it's in this chunk, and he's pointing just to the rich people before who haven't exhibited patience. They haven't been a patient people. So it's like he's talking about this is what patience doesn't look like. This is what you should, and this is how you should be patient. And then he goes on to say how to grow in patience through prayer, through praise, confessing your sins, forgiveness, and pray again. And you might be thinking, okay, Anna, that's a little bit of an overstretch. Um, how the heck did you get there? Well, come on a little journey with me, a journey of patience, if you will, a journey into my mind, which is probably quite a scary place for many people. Um, but patience is a really interesting word, and it's a word that is used a lot in the, Old, in the New Testament and the Old Testament, but it's often overlooked because, quite, quite frankly, it's not your most like heroic virtue, is it? It's not like courage or justice, integrity, generosity, or even holiness. Patience, by comparison, almost sounds like weak and passive. And that's exactly what the Greco-Roman culture thought about this word. They thought that virtue, um, patience as a virtue was not to be celebrated. It wasn't a thing that was celebrated um, because it meant that if you were... Um, if you had to exhibit patience, it meant that you were suffering in some way and that you didn't have the power to change your circumstances. You didn't have the power by your own means, whether by your wealth or by your influence or by, by your abilities to change your circumstances. So none of their heroes were ever celebrated for exhibiting patience. They're warriors, they're Greek gods, because they had you know, the wealth, the influence, the power, the abilities to change their circumstances. And much like the people that James is talking about in the first part of that chapter, they rely on their wealth, their control and their power for their salvation. Yet despite this, despite this seemingly negative view of virtue, James is saying to the church, hone this virtue, practice this virtue, grow in this virtue of patience. He's commending it to them as a way to re react and to respond. And many commentators um, actually see um, the celebration of patience in the Christian church as a dangerous thing. They see it as a, a tool of the ruling class to pacify and oppress the, um, the poor. It's seen as a weapon to accept the status quo, a virtue that's seemingly foolish in the face of injustice. And yet James is commending um, uh, practice as a virtue to, to, to um, possess, develop and hone 
And what is more, he's using it right in the context of injustice. Mm -hmm. Both James and his readers were experiencing persecution and the rich people that James would have been speaking about in the first part of that chapter were probably the ones causing the suffering to his readers. So is James saying to his readers, accept the status quo, have patience, just accept it? And this theme of um, patience in the face of injustice is actually a continuous theme in the early church. The early church wrote kind of treaties, kind of um, like little things that they thought that were really, really important for the church to hear and establish what they believed. And the first virtue that there's a treatise written about was the treaty, uh, was the virtue of patience. It's described as the highest virtue, the greatest of all virtues. And it was actually only once the church grew in power, became more established, um, that they began to qualify the virtue of patience and it was not quite as celebrated. But Tertullian and Cyprian, who were two North African theologians, they were significant during this time of persecution in the kind of the first three um, th in the third century. And this is a time when the, the church had this unusual rise in popularity. It was, um, it's been written, by, written about by many, many authors, secular and Christian, because it was fascinatingly improbable that this Jewish sect would become so potent and viral in the Roman Empire. The R-rate, we all know what the R-rate is now, of Christianity was extraordinary over the first three centuries. And this was before the empire kind of grabbed hold of Christianity and used it as a, um, an organised and re accepted religion. It was before all of that. And these two theologians, like James, are saying are calling the church to practice patience. Now, we can't ignore that. We can't ignore that these are, these are three people who were experiencing persecution themselves. In fact, Cyprian was actually martyred for his faith. We can't ignore patience and write it off as something, a politically incorrect tool of oppression because they, these three characters were people who were oppressed and they flipped this virtue on its head and held it up as the greatest of virtues. Mm. And nowadays we would probably advocate for like a holy impatience, wouldn't we? We talk, we'll just use the word holy in front of um, impatience and, and just impatience, almost like as an attitude that we can get away with. But what is it about patience that is so significant? Now, um, it starts off by actually that patience is rooted in the character of God. For Tertullian, um, God was the example of patience because God had promiscuously been generous in sharing the wonders of creation, the brilliance of the sun and the seasons with everyone, the just and the unjust. He had poured out his blessings upon people. God endures ungrateful hearts. He endures greedy people who worship idols. And God does not in that moment compel belief, but instead by his patience, he draws them into it. And then it's revealed in Jesus perfectly. The difference between the Greco-Roman heroes who actually, they were, they boasted of their exploit. Jesus actually kept a low profile. He serves, he bore reproach, he ate at anybody's table. He declined the offer of mass angelic in, 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 intervention, sorry, I struggled with that word, yeah. um, rejected the avenging sword and healed the servant of his enemy. That is where patience is rooted. It is rooted in the character of God and seen perfectly in the person of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And how then do we describe patience? Well, it's not something that patience is not manipulative. It does not grasp for control. Mm -hmm. 
It's not in a hurry. It doesn't use underhand methods. It's not violent. It gives freedom. It does not coerce people. It is hopeful because change is coming. And under all of these things is this trust, this trust in the one who is in control, this trust, as James talks about, as the judge. And what is the character of that judge? He says that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. That's the one who is in control. So patience isn't this passive thing. It's actually an active choice to be like God. Isn't that amazing? It's a choice to be like God. So why do they have this absurd trust in the midst of suffering? Well, underneath this whole thing, is underpinning it, is the resurrection that their confidence comes in the resurrection, that Jesus is alive, that God is doing a work of resurrection, and one day he is going to restore all things. That's where their confidence comes from. That's where their trust comes from. So they can have patience in all circumstances because that is what God is doing. That is who he is. That is his character. That is their destination. That is their reality. Thank you, Kath. (laughs) And I want to drill down into patience a little more because I want to give us a bit more context of this word and word to understand how it isn't a tool of oppression. There are actually two Greek words for patience. Both are used in the New Testament, but each of them have a, like a little bit of a nuance. Um, and James actually uses both of these words in the passage. One is translated as patience and the other one is translated as perseverance. So I'm going to have an attempt at speaking Greek words, um, getting the dyslexic to say words that she can't. Anyway, I've got it. I've got it. You don't. You probably don't know. You don't know what it is anyway. Um, so macrothumia um, is a patience with people. It's a. It's related to people, and it's a choice to love. The opposite of that type of patience is to take revenge or wrath. Again, it's worth noting just how similar James's teachings is to Jesus. You know, the one who said, um, in, like it's in the context of oppression and injustice and persecution. And James is inviting the church to how to respond to respond in love. Mm-hmm. And how did Jesus say that we should treat our enemies? He said to love our enemies. So choosing patient love rather than the revenge, love your enemies. Mm-hmm. James's teachings are very similar to the teachings of Jesus. And the second word is hypermona, hypermona, um, which is used twice. And it's translated in this circumstance as patience. And it's about being patient in circumstance rather than patience like with the circumstances. So it isn't about being content with um, bad circumstances, like just accept your situation, but rather it's about not losing hope in your situation. And the opposite of this type of impatience is cowardice, giving up, um, compromising despondency. That's kind of gives it a little bit more nuance, doesn't it? So in summary, James is calling them not to be passive, but to have courageous hope that doesn't give up when things get hard and to choose love even when it's difficult, to choose to treat their oppressors the way God has treated them without coercion or manipulation. The ones to be pitied as you read this passage are not the oppressed, are not the people who are suffering, but it's, it's the rich. The ones who have missed it, they think their wealth, their power is going to be the thing that saves them. They are foolish. They're trusting in their own abilities. And it's a classic thing of like God taking the foolish things to shame the wise, taking the foolish thing of patience and the people who are choosing patience in suffering to fool the wise. 
And J um, James is not saying, um, he's basically saying, don't respond to your oppressors with the weapons of your oppressors. You don't need to manipulate and control like they do. Come in a different spirit, practice patience. And then James goes on to be just super practical of like, how does one practice patience? Well, you pray, you praise, and you pray again, and you forgive, and you confess, and you pray again. It's very similar to the way Cyprian and Tertullian would speak about it. They would speak about having the, the habitus of the Christians. They would talk about the daily domestic life of ordinary life of ordinary Christians choosing to trust in the very simple things of prayer and praise and forgiving and confessing. And that is where they're going to find their salvation, um, not through their own power, by practicing those things on a daily basis in their domestic life. And there's so many things, I, you know, as I've gone on that kind of quick run through patience that I'd love to draw it out, but I've just kind of chosen two things that I just want to draw our attention to and in a way of like making it practical to us now. And the first thing I want to talk about is recognizing when we're practicing functional atheism. What do I mean by that functional atheism? Well, the description of the rich rulers is essentially people who trust in their wealth, their power to save them. They don't trust that God will save them, so they start trying to save themselves. It's essentially recognizing that we don't trust that God is going to be enough for us or provide for us, so we take matters into our own hands. We manipulate, we cut corners, and quite frankly, the fruits of the Spirit go out the window. The ends begin to justify the means. And functional atheism is when we're living like we don't believe that God actually exists. And James would call that dead faith. Yeah. And I'm going to be honest, um, as in this, in this time of where it has felt out of control, there have been moments where we as a leadership team at KXC, we've experienced a temptation towards this and probably given into it at some times. We've experienced like a lack of progression and momentum, which we felt was killed back in March. And at times it's kind of just left us grasping to like feel successful and feel significant again, almost like grasping without faith to save ourselves, to grab control of the circumstances. Even a month ago or a month or so ago, I went for a walk with Pete Hughes and he had to directly, very bluntly say to me, Anna, stop grasping in the flesh what should be of the spirit. Stop acting like there isn't a God who raises the dead. Mm. So I see it here. I see it in me. I see it in us. I see it in the charismatic tradition um, where in our response to church decline, we've begun to franchise church and church growth is treated like a 10-step plan. Mm. And church decline is an issue, let's, but let's not address it like we don't have a God who raises the dead. Let's yeah. not grab on by control and manipulation, grasp power for influence yeah. to change in our own strength. And I'm not saying strategies are not important, they're not a bad thing, but I just see a few alarm bells and flags. And I'm, I say that as someone who's part of the charismatic tradition, who belongs to that family, who loves that family. And I see it in myself. And I, because I see it in myself, I can see it in other people who, where we see this temptation um, to, to not be defined by the spirit as what is our, like, you know, where we were born, um, but rather just to continue by following a map, not a guide, by following a, a plan rather than the spirit of God. Yeah. And God is not panicking in response to church decline. He is not panicking. He's not fearful. Yeah. And he's calling us not to manipulate and grasp for control, but to be men and women of faith, not of schemes. Yeah. And I wonder how much 
you have been doing this during your time. As you reflect back over the last year, what choices have you made during this time where actually, where have they come from? Have they been born out of faith or have they been born out of fear that God isn't gonna come through for you? Mm. Have you grown despondent that you actually wanna take matters into your own hands? And it isn't just circumstances that have required patience, it's people. Like we have seen the worst and the best of ourselves, haven't we? And we've seen the worst and the best in other people. And it's everything from housemates and kids and husbands and wives to, um, to armed police officers taking lives, from colleagues to politicians. And I'm gonna throw the church in there too. We've seen the worst and the best of the church because I'm, I know for a fact that KXC has hurt people during this time. And functional atheism would say that forgiveness isn't possible, that revenge is the only way to respond to people, to hold a debt against people, that dead faith would act like there isn't a God that hasn't been faithful and merciful to us despite our unfaithfulness. Mm -hmm. Therefore, patience is, is not possible. That's what dead faith would say. Dead faith would discount Jesus dying on the cross saying, Father, forgive them as a virtue for him. It's not wise or practical response nowadays. We patronize Jesus as an idealistic Sunday activity, but he has no place in current affairs or our personal lives. It's worth taking time out to take space and consider how have we responded in this time? To bring ourselves before God and say, God, like, have I been practicing functional atheism? Has I, atheism? Have I been living like you don't actually exist? Have I been grasping for control of circumstances myself because I didn't trust you enough to save me? That I didn't think you would be enough for me? Have I sought revenge and sat in anger instead of choosing love? And my gut is there's not a single person listening to this who can honestly say that they've always acted from a place of deep trust in this time, that, they have, that they've chosen to constantly love people and not give up. And James isn't kicking people when they're down. He isn't shaming them. He doesn't leave them condemned or hopeless. He says to them, like, that's the reason he then says, like, you know, you can confess your sins and you'll be forgiven. He reminds at the end of confession and forgiveness because he knows he's been provocative. He knows that people will be listening to this whole, um, these whole verses and be thinking, wow, I, I'm lacking something here. He knows that he's calling people to a, a higher standard, to, to virtues that are born in the character and nature of God. And therefore, they're going to be feeling a sense of lack. That's why he says, if you need anything, pray. Do you need patience? Then pray for it. If you've got a reason to celebrate because you've been practicing patience, then, then celebrate and praise God. If you need to confess your sins, then confess your sins. If you need to forgive other people, forgive other people. If you need anything, pray. If you're lacking anything, pray. Mm -hmm. James is being kind again. He's saying, like, I know you're gonna lack a lot, so pray. Pray that God would come and yeah. fill the gap. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing, recognizing our functional atheism. And the second thing is just an observation about the rapid growth of the church through ordinary people. Like I want to draw you back to some of the things I said about the early church in those first three centuries, because there's an argument. Um, and if you want to read more about it, if you're a massive geek about the early church, as I am, um, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church um, is a really good book. And it's basically about the improbable rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire. 
And their argument in it is that patience was the virtue that set the early church apart. Like this despised virtue, this virtue of the oppressed was held up as the greatest virtue. And patience was the church's response to persecution. And it was disconcerting for those who watched it. Their neighbors were watching the way they responded to persecution. And when they saw them respond, not in wrath and revenge and not with a despondency, they were like, what the heck is going on with this group of people? It was their patience that made the Christians make strange choices about their wealth, about their power, about their sex. It made them peculiar, intriguing and fascinating. They, they, and the carriers of this patient and this growth of the early church who, who made... Um, like the, the people that saw the growth, they weren't like rich, powerful people. They were just the marginalized, the humble, ordinary, often anonymous Christians just getting on with their domestic lives. And that challenged people. The way they didn't live their domestic lives challenged people. Mm. And the church's faith has always been in its most eloquent when it's not in control. Because we're not resigned, not because they were resigned to the status quo or passive, but because they were active and subversive, undermining power with disarming grace and anticipating the work of the spirit in their midst. Mm. And we've been at our worst when we've um, let go of patience and we've grabbed onto the tools of manipulation, control and oppression. When we've been imperialistic, dominating and controlling. And that just isn't just our history as the church, it's present now. And in some ways, it's even more desperate now that we are in decline. And it tastes almost like bitter to talk about the church in that way, because that's just not Jesus, is it? Jesus is not imperialistic, dominating or controlling. And do you know what? The revival that our nation so desperately needs and lo we long for isn't going to come because a celebrity has tweeted about Jesus. Even though I was very excited when I found out Mario Toje, who I think is going to be the, the future um, England rugby cap captain, was in fact a Christian. Um, that's by the by. But, oh, I, I did get very excited about that, but probably for other reasons. Um, revival is not going to come because Justin Bieber tweets about Jesus. Revival isn't going to come because KXC have got a building that we've secure building for 10 years. Revival isn't going to come because Pete Hughes has done yet another great talk. Revival is only going to come when um, ordinary Christians living their domestic lives as if Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah. There is no program or event more powerful and potent than that, yeah. than ordinary Christians saying, actually, I believe Jesus is coming back. Yeah. I believe that Jesus is going to restore things and I believe he's doing things now. Yeah. That's potent. It will make you obscure and it will make you do weird things like forgive your enemies. Yeah. It will mean you'll make odd choices with your money. You will serve people rather than seek to be served. You won't grasp for power or significance. You'll be friends with people unlike yourself. Yeah. Your singleness or your marriage will mean something different to you, but you won't think you're better than other people because you know that everybody needs the mercy of God. Yeah. We don't need more celebrity status or people of influence in hierarchical stru power structures. We don't need more buildings. We don't need more wealth. We need Jesus. Yes. Amen. Our trust is not in those things. Our trust is in Jesus. And we need more people who actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead mm -hmm. and live like it. And that is what Paul, not Paul, is James is calling <laughs> us to, to have yeah. a living faith and a live faith yeah. that Jesus is actually here and he's doing things. And I just want to finish up with that, um, that quote again from Cyprian. 
because I feel like it just kind of brings things to a conclusion. Beloved brethren, we are, not ph we are philosophers not in words but in deeds. We exhibit wisdom not by our dress but by our truth. We know virtues by their practice rather than boasting of them. Do, we do not speak great things, but we live them. Okay, see, God is calling us to live great things in our domestic lives, in our day-to-day -day living, in our relationships with our friends, our families, the people we come in contact with. That is what he's calling us to do. He's calling us to make small, obscure, weird choices about relationships and how we choose to live our lives. And that's what will be fascinating to people. That's the thing that is the most potent thing. Mm. The resurrection power working in and through us.